0: Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the aristocratic, Eddie Matthews. Dr. Matthews, sorry, I need to, I still haven't quite adjusted my my intro to your new profession. How's everything going? It's especially uh, relevant to today's topic.
1: Good. Um, I just returned from the DMV and officially got my name changed, so.
0: uh... (laughs) You got rid of the Eddie. You're just Dr. Matthews now. Correct. (laughs) Perfect. Good, good. I think uh I think that should get the point across that you want your your title to be. Yeah, shared. I hope
1: people finally respect me now. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of somebody getting a doctorate because no one's ever cared about what they thought, and then they go to the you know trouble of getting a doctorate and still no one cares <laughs> what they think. As if, yeah.
0: You, you make that up like it's probably not been done, but I'm sure that people's decisions to enroll have definitely been influenced by that, similar that, calculations
1: right that's a, that's a fright that's probably true and that's a really frightening thing to me as we'll get into in two days episode
0: Yeah, so today we're talking about just academia in general, right? I think in the context of the pandemic and kind of the crisis that academia finds itself in now, Mm -hmm. um, but one in which we kind of are pointing out that it's more accentuating previously existing schisms rather than producing new ones, although there are some new ones. But yeah, we're going to talk kind of a wide-ranging conversation. I've got a few things to talk about. We read a few articles, as scholars do, in preparation (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so this should be an interesting one i think so hopefully we'll get some feedback from from the fans out there the rational listeners
1: Ooh, i like that um yeah so we've been trying to have a conversation or like thinking through had a conversation about academia for like six months and we never really found like a good i think focal point for that mm-hmm. um so the focal point that we're going to use for the, for this conversation that i think will be a good one is a uh, shout out to james wicks uh,
0: <laughs> long time nice. listener
1: Uh, Yeah. And he told me about this article and I looked it up. Um, It's on Vanity Fair. It's called Coronavirus is blowing up America's higher education system. And just talking about the uh, how different universities uh, kind of scrambled in the spring to uh, maneuver online and then basically the opportunity that they've squandered and kind of trying to reimagine and rethink education in a 21st century like virtual context and you know the opportunity they sacrificed in doing that was to well the the reason that that opportunity was sacrificed rather um was because they were just trying to devote all their time and resources to get back into a face-to-face in-person environment in the fall and kind of delusional hopeful thinking that would allow that to happen even though all of the signs and predictions in the public health community did not indicate that at all, that that would be possible. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to use that article as just kind of a launching point to talk about a broader conversation about the trends in higher education, the future of it, the problem with it right now. And we're both, you know, I guess you could say beneficiaries and victims of all of this
0: nerds
1: <laughs> so that's uh that's another kind of complicated uh factor that we have to take into account you know because we'll be we'll probably likely be perpetuating all of these problems but hopefully we can use our positions well i'll stay in academia if you stay in academia hopefully we can use those positions to kind of like mitigate in a tiny way some of this damage that we've
0: been seeing yeah, do you wanna give like a like a ten second overview of what your current job is too, which is like in academia but specifically focused on a lot of the coronavirus related online platforms as well?
1: Yeah, totally. Um I guess I could give a run maybe we should just give a rundown too on like our experience with academia. Sure. I went to a small Christian liberal arts school in San Diego called Point Loma for my undergraduate and master's degree um i got an undergraduate degree in writing and a master's degree in education did you get
0: it on the computer as well or did you just get it in writing I got it. They, just, they just got you a degree in writing huh? you yeah, didn't wait, get it
1: <laughs> actually i don't have any proof of it it was the handwritten note by some staff member who was fired the next day no so i got in writing yeah um a full document and uh yeah i got my master's in education um mainly because i was trying to get a promotion for work at the time and the masters did allow me to get that promotion and i got a discount because i was a point limit employee at the time too in retrospect that master's degree that i got uh, did not serve i think the overall trajectory necessarily
0: was it partially online as well or was it
1: yeah yeah online classes yeah i had a fair amount of online classes just as a student i took a couple community college online classes too to uh, graduate early uh, from my undergrad and um that'll be kind of like a good thing to talk about too in terms of uh you know the conversation surrounding this coming fall semester and student decisions and all that. Uh, Yeah, and then I got my PhD in creative writing at Swansea University in the south of Wales in the UK. And uh, basically, I think the reason that I'm super hesitant, I think the reason that I never mention to anybody that I got a doctorate is because it bums me out that I have to get a doctorate to get a seat at the table. Because that's really why I did it. Like I wanted to stay in academia and I wanted to have a higher ceiling of stuff that I could do potentially if I want to get into administration or if I wanted to be a full-time faculty member. Like the PhD is the, is the ticket to the table. Or I guess in my field, you could argue that an MFA is. But then that's just, I think, if you wanted to land a full-time faculty position, if you want to have some more maneuverability they care a lot more about a PhD in that respect. People don't really know what an MFA is outside of the creative arts um, in terms of like the wider, like academic community. So I went for the PhD and um, I guess I'm not like, I'm proud of the work that I did out of it, but I'm not necessarily proud of the distinction or designation that it is because maybe it just feels to me like everyone has PhDs now. And so it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel all that special or maybe I just, maybe didn't, I didn't have the purest of motives kind of going into it because I just wanted to be, I just wanted more like uh, leverage and mobility within my profession.
0: This is a classic problem of happiness, right? Like the rich people are, you know, when you're middle income and you're like, oh, I just needed, you know, an extra couple hundred thousand and I'll be rich. But then you do that and then suddenly you start hanging out. <laughs> at the country club and everyone there is even richer than you. Right. <laughs> if you get a PhD everywhere and you're at university all the time, everyone else has a PhD and it it uh, diminishes <laughs> the appeal, I think.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I don't and and maybe there's just like a self-loathing part of my personality that I can't like, you know, allow, allow myself any kind of accomplishment. I don't really know, but it's probably all kind of like mixed up uh in there. So that's a little background for me in terms of, oh, and then what I'm, uh, what I'm doing like for full-time work right now is, uh, a job in instructional design, which is essentially like the, a job I did a few years ago before I left to do my PhD, I came back. And, um, the university that I worked at point Loma, uh, was in crisis mode, still is in crisis mode. And so they hired me on for a six month full-time contract to, just help all, uh, not all, help the faculty within two departments um, put their courses online and help them essentially think through how to like structure and design their curriculum in an online setting um, in a way that's like hopefully engaging, but very simple. And so um, that's what I've been doing the last few weeks since I started on the 20th of July and uh yeah it's it's a fascinating time to kind of (laughs) be in the thick of that you know because um a lot of people like the people who were prepared to do this that already been teaching online before it's kind of like no sweat but then the people who have been resisting um online education like I had one instructor that I work with respond to a survey that we sent out just to like gauge where people were at in terms of their progress in online education. He said like I avoided online education like the plague until the plague (laughs) and that's That's like that's one subset of full-time faculty members Uh at universities that are just so die hard the only real education is face-to-face and I think the problem with that is like I have some sympathy for that and I understand the limitations of online Education, but then you just look like a dinosaur if you're like the person that's you know resisting natu- the natural evolution of technology. I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Um, What's your background in academia? <laughs> well, you know, I, I went to, to college in Colorado, Colorado College, like a liberal arts education, undergrad. Then I did a master's at the London School of Economics, and now I'm doing my PhD at the the University of Washington with work in between each of those steps thrown in. Um, See, to me,
1: those institutions are all, like, badass, high-caliber institutions. So, like, I, maybe I would feel better about my degrees if, if I was in your shoes, you know? Like, I'm not necessarily, I don't know. Like, do you, like, do you feel, like, when you, met, when you graduated from LSE, were you like, damn, that was, that was hard, and I earned this, and that was great. Like how was your what were I, your reactions? I
0: appreciate the thoughts. I, I don't know if uh I feel like there's always like another step. I don't know if this is the case with you, but like in high school, people were like, Oh, you just gotta get, get good grades until you get into college. Right. And then in college I was like, Oh, good, I'm here. And they're like, Wait, no, you gotta get good grades to get a master's degree. And I was like, gosh crap, all right. <laughs> right. And then I got to the master's degree, I was like, All right, sweet, like it doesn't matter, they're like wait, wait, wait. <laughs> 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 if you want to become a professor, you've gotta get good grades again. And yeah. so now at this point, finally at the point where there is really no reason to like focus on grades. It's more about publishing and doing research, sure. but still it's been so ingrained in my mind that I like have to get good grades that it's still an inordinate amount of stress of like, oh, did, how did I do in this class when it really doesn't matter. Um, right. So I don't know. I feel like there's diminishing returns to the accomplishment of academia because you just kind of get caught up in the inertia um, along the way. you know you know each degree is less is i don't know less fulfilling than the last one in terms of the actual degree itself maybe what you can do with it and just feeling accomplished for having put in the work is is nice and uh, eventually if i get to the end of this one maybe i'll feel relieved because it will actually be the last one yeah you would know better than me i don't know it doesn't seem like you had that reaction at the end but maybe it's still coming to hit you when you
1: i guess it's still coming to hit me but um I think that for me, there's something that like, I, I guess I don't know. I guess it. I haven't come to a place where it's, um, like manifested in anything material yet. Ooh. The the degree that I worked three years yeah, for, yeah. you know, yeah, I think maybe once that happens and I can look back and be like, all right, this never would have happened had I not gone undone that degree, then that would be a more helpful kind of like substantiation of the motivation for getting Yeah, that's it. fair. Um, but yeah, I think until that happens, it just looks like, um, I don't know, It it just looks like a thing on a paper.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. You want to get into some of the The things we want to talk about here with just academia in general. I think the interesting thing is that our degrees are from such different subjects and I kind of want to draw attention to like how different because I think when people think of academia it's seen as this sort of like monolith of like higher education the PhDs are all the same you do a dissertation but in reality they're you know they could not be more different.
1: Or I mean especially like you're saying our fields like our specific PhDs yeah could not be more different (laughs) like yeah you've been required to do and what i was expected to do are just yeah worlds apart
0: well i also think it's just based on like different countries have different expectations for what you're supposed to get out of it totally and yeah so it's it's interesting like for a poli sci degree phd in the uk you basically go straight to the dissertation yeah in the U.S., that's not how it works. <laughs> you have to do right. a lot of other stuff. <laughs> well, that, um,
1: that's what appealed to me. That was the whole thing yeah. that appealed to me about for a creative writing. Like, hot take, but I don't think that there should be postgraduate taught creative writing courses. Like, at that point, you should just be given time to write and, like, find your voice and refine that. You shouldn't, like, if you don't know how to, structure a story and you need like postgraduate courses to teach you how to do that. Like you're in the wrong yeah, field, yeah. man. No. So, I, but I, you like had to have the talk component because you had to learn all these r- quantitative research methods.
0: So yeah, I get the quantitative stuff. I think that's the most value added to doing a degree in the U S in terms of poli sci, most of the European degrees and other places, not all of them, but most of them don't have, required method courses or required method sequence, um, because they don't do as much methods research. So it doesn't make sense to, you know, put all these resources into teaching methods. Um, But in terms of the way political science is moving in the US, which is very quantitative, um, probably more so than, it's a different debate, but the knowledge of at least how it works and being able to do it is so important. And it is one of those things like you can teach yourself, but it's so difficult because you run into one problem and you're like, I don't understand what that symbol means. And it takes you an hour to look it up. Whereas just being able to learn from a professor actually is incredibly helpful. Um, That's tight. So yeah, I, I think that is the value added that I find the most from my program so far.
1: Yeah. Whereas, whereas for me, the equivalent of that problem is like, should I use the word desiccated or shredded here? <laughs> and then I figure it out in like 45 seconds and move on
0: with life. It's always desiccated, right? Because desiccated yeah. is badass. Desiccated is a great word. <laughs> so wait, do I get an honorary doctorate? <laughs> <laughs> you're not Hillary
1: Clinton. If you're Hillary Clinton, Swansea University will give you an honorary doctorate, and you will then have the honor of meeting me. Dang.
0: It's okay. next level. I, the thing I don't really get, I, you, maybe you can tell us about it another time. Colons, semicolons, all these different types of colons. I have professors who use them all the time, just like they're commas. And I, I, I think I need to bring in an expert next time and be like, okay, this is when we need to use these. This is a massive overuse of semicolons in the political science profession from what I've seen. This yeah. is what we came here to talk to you about today. This is the main <laughs> problem with academia, overuse of semicolons. Well, uh,
1: the stuff, like I've read some, you know, I've like approved some of the stuff like back in, in the early stages when you're applying to different Uh like you'd send me stuff to proof and i can't i like didn't understand any of it you know and you'd have but but i'm not that's not like a critique i'm saying like you're you it's
0: it's on purpose they do that it's like basically there's no there's no like set structure for papers or articles but then if you turn something in, people will be like, that's, you wrote this incorrectly. It's like, there was no guideline. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? But there's like a, you know, a hidden, basically a code to what you're supposed to say and where you're supposed but, to say it. But it's
1: like the stuff that you guys are expected to communicate in your field is so technical and difficult to grasp that you can't have a five word sentence. Like all of your sentences have to be four lines, you know? Yeah. And that's something that kind of struck, struck me about that. But yeah, anyways, I guess to go back to basically uh this article was just making the case that universities like did the best they can actually did an impressive job of going online in a matter of weeks. But that um it's certainly not we've been on an unsustainable trajectory uh within the higher education like industry in the, the past, you know, couple decades. Um it says post-secondary education in the United States is a 700 billion dollar a year business and uh tuition and fees and so it's just talking about how i think there's a perception that higher education used to be this thing where you would get one degree and that degree would kind of train you for not just the world but to just like be a thinking person within that world and be a well-rounded individual within that and it's become like a kind of self-feeding self-sustaining industry that requires loans to perpetuate itself. And then the reason that's unsustainable is that we now have $1.7 trillion of student debt in
0: this country. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a public good, right? That's the ideal of, of education is that it's a public good, You know, educating people at a level beyond secondary education, high school education is meant to benefit the whole society, not just the individuals who undertake those courses. And I think we can talk about a lot of reasons why that may or may not be the case. Uh, but I do think it's interesting, just talking back to what we noted before, the idea that academia is seen as kind of this monolith, when in reality, each institution like we've both into a few each major each course and each kind of degree is so different um, and I think it it has kind of led to this credibility crisis in academia a bit because you get a lot of universities and colleges you know either for-profit or ones just are less performing that are banking on them being part of a seven hundred billion dollar industry that are not as you know quality as some of these other institutions and they're still roped into the same discussion when we talk about the benefits of education and there are also you know lots of majors and lots of individual degrees that are basically not living up to that high standard of advancing you know America as a whole or just the world as a whole if you think of education that way Um, and I'm not going to single out any specific institutions or programs um, but the Practicality, practicality of a I'm lot of, of degrees. <laughs> University of Phoenix,
1: uh, the for-profit. Um, I don't know what you'd call them. Chain of institutions.
0: National University. National uh, University—that's a great name. That just sounds like made up for like a TV show. Yeah, <laughs> I went to National University. <laughs> it's it's. I guess it's unfair for me to like.
1: You know, talk about these institutions because there's like really I know people that have taught and worked for those places and I have respect for them for like the individuals within that I'm just saying like the ethos of for-profit education and maybe this is naive but like that just that doesn't sit well with me like I don't like that idea of higher education institutions being of like the bottom line being the only thing they care about and they obviously, I'm sure if you look at the mission statement of University of Phoenix or National University, they'll probably have some highfalutin thing about being, you know, well-rounded liberal arts, but that's not true at all. Like, they, their admissions practices are very predatory, and I just, I don't believe in, like, the ethos of what, um, I guess, what that indicates, higher education institutions that are designed to make money.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I think I partially disagree with you. I think in terms of those specific organizations, totally agree. But the, like if you look at business school or, you know, most postgraduate degrees, a lot of them are for, prof, for profit or at least you have to pay quite a lot up front. The tuition is going to be almost extortionist. But they're, you know, it's predicated on the idea that you will make it back, right? Med school is crazy expensive, but then you become a doctor and you make a crazy amount of money. And so yeah. it's worth the investment. The problem I see is when the idea of college and the college premium is used to sell programs that do not live up to that standard, where the benefits of attending are either just slightly positive or basically negative in a lot of cases. If you're not using that degree and you end up spending lots of money or they're taking advantage of you in specific ways, Right. I mean, that's a problem. And so we, we can talk about this a little bit, but I was astounded to find that there are actual federal laws that prohibit the government from disclosing information about the employment and salaries and, of graduates from individual schools. So but what that means is... You that say m- <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
1: No, well, that must mean that the results are probably pretty embarrassing and suboptimal.
0: Of course. I mean, and it would allow for it to be... I mean, I assume if we take it at its best intent, it was meant to dissociate these universities from employment or income-based metrics of success. You know, maybe you think that a liberal arts education allows you to be happier in a job that you enjoy, to be more creative, something like that, where money isn't the most important thing. And sure, there's something to be said for that. I would rather work in a position that pays slightly less and makes me a lot happier and I can do more good, but, if that's covering up for the fact that many of these organizations and colleges give you a degree that you literally cannot use in a professional setting, that's a whole other thing entirely. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's suffice to say that that is happening in pretty much every college anywhere. And so some of the ways that the, the UK and other, you know, you know, other nations get around this is they have colleges that are specific for specific things. This reduces fixed costs because you don't have to invest in a science department. You don't have to invest in, you know, a new building for the literature department. You can be a specifically social science institution and you can do the social science things that are all closely related, have social science-based investments. You could be a literal, a liber, uh, literal um, like English university that focuses on English the literature, historical literature, those sorts of things, creative writing. And you would have to have far fewer costs. And the benefits would be much more obvious because you could say, look, here's where our graduates go. These are the types of things they work in. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with this disconnect between academia, higher education, and the careers that people go on to work after higher education. I think people that work in higher ed, And I think I definitely fall into this at different points in time. It's about, you know, educating people. And that's the ideal, right? If it's a public good, it's about getting people to be able to reason and think independently, um, you know, become a more fulfilled human being, all these ideals. But, But a lot of people would call bullshit on that. Yeah. I'm not just call bullshit, but they, even if that's true, that's not the reason a lot of people are attending. That might be the reason that a lot of administrators and professors think you're there. But in, you know recent surveys show that above 90% of people say that they go to college to improve employment opportunities in the US. Right. That's why they're there. Right. And we're doing a disservice to those people, the vast majority, if we're teaching them skills that focus on you know, how to... You know, differentiate between different types of political systems. If we're not teaching them how to get a position with these skills in the aftermath, the amount of money that's spent on career centers at different institutions is insane to me. I think yeah. that was one of the best things about my undergraduate institution is we had a terrific career center that would help you find positions, help you um, invest in internships, and get you in positions to see if you'd actually like the work in these areas. Yeah, And some of the other institutions I've been to, the career centers are just atrocious. And in higher academia, like it, it, they don't exist, right? Because there's yeah. such a such a taboo to go into anything outside of academia that they, they literally, it would be against their worldview to invest in institutions that would link you to outside employment opportunities. Which is insane. Um,
1: but I, I guess I have an anecdote about that. So when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, um, you know, I was a I was a young, spry, twenty one year old looking for a job in the world, and so I went to our uh, you know office of uh, strengths and vocation they called it Point Loma, and went to one of the people who works there, and he made a couple phone calls and then it was like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, sweet, <laughs> cool, and then I just applied for like I don't know forty jobs minimum wage like I, I didn't even get an interview for a Barnes and Noble position you know and so I was just like I you know I applied for stuff at like churches I applied for stuff at like weird uh pyramid structure like insurance. couldn't even get a job at the
0: bottom of the pyramid they were like uh, yeah. we don't want you to sell our knives get out of here exactly.
1: <laughs> and they were like they're like weird predatory like kind of like union life insurance contract that'd be in these like <laughs> interviews not even knowing what it is but like hey i guess they're like at least interviewing me you know and so our yeah our um our networking infrastructure was paltry to say the least um and that was uh distressing <laughs> in my experience and maybe it's gotten better i I will. I won't speak to
0: that. Well, it's thing. very but, interesting but, because but,
1: yeah, but okay. I want to follow up that anecdote with yeah. another anecdote of like, I eventually did get a job and it was at Point Loma. And like, yeah, it didn't pay well or nearly like paid what it should to live in San Diego, but it was something. And then I leveraged that job into promotion. And then I got like a discounted master's degree because I worked at the university. And then that eventually led me to. The job i have now that i left for a few years kind of in between Um, but the job i have now and and the classes because i'm teaching a few classes this fall and all of those classes that adjunct work so like an extra you know a few thousand bucks for a class like all of that came because i made really deep like good relationships with people on campus and then we came to trust each other and just like really invested in one another. And that came because I went to a small school that allowed for those types of relationships to transpire. Not to say that that also can't happen at a University of Washington or at a bank institution, but in my experience at Swansea, which is about 20,000 students versus Point Loma, which is about, you know, 3,500, give or take. it was much much harder to have those types of friendships and connections at at Swansea because of the size of and the dispersion of like the campus and the department and everything and so it's kind of a double edged sword i guess in my own experience because we had way less resources and way less networking and all that stuff i guess outside but so that's not good for most I guess, well, I guess it depends on the student in the field, but it worked out for me because I like academia and wanted to go back into it, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things is that, you know, minority students, first generation students, one of the major barriers that they've shown to employment has been the lack of connections, right? This is one of the huge benefits of being from a richer household with somebody whose parents have a good job is that you immediately have built in connections to these types of industries and these worlds. And if the career center is not helping you link or the college is not investing in opportunities for you to link to not just talk to people in these, you know, actual careers, actual industries, but teaching you how to talk to them, how to interact with people outside of university, which is obviously very different than real life, then they're doing a disservice to you and your education. That is why most people are there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not the same everywhere and they do a lot of good things in different places, but the lack of an emphasis on that link is pretty insane to me. I mean, you can see it in other places as well. Like we have The incentive structure is for professors who are you know, most of the time lifetime academics, not all the time, but most of the time, to teach skills to students who are in the vast majority, you know, 98% are not going to go into academia. So we're teaching them the skills of academics to have them succeed in non-academic fields. Yeah. And you can see the problem right away. And that's not necessarily an issue. There are skills that academics have, hopefully, that are helpful outside of academia. But there are also lots of skills you need to succeed outside of academia that academics do not excel in, or at least don't have an emphasis on teaching or any incentive to teach in education systems, which is why there really should be Practical, practical aspects to pretty much every degree. What I find my degree, the most important thing and most thing that I've found the most helpful has been the quantitative stuff. It's very much not fun. And if I had been given the idea as a naive undergrad to take these quantitative courses or not, I would have not taken them because I would have been like, that doesn't sound fun. And I don't want to be behind a computer all the time when I'm working a job. But if someone had spoken to me and said, look, this is the way things are going. If you want to work in this field, you need to know this then I would have thought differently. And that's what they need. They need someone like that who will tell you, look, you need this practical skill. This will set you apart from the thousands, hundreds of thousands of other liberal arts graduates who can also write and read. (laughs) That's what we teach them to do, but they don't know how to work this computer program. And if you have that, you have a massive leg up on the competition.
1: Right. So let's say hypothetically, there's two, um, there's two, two types of students, let's say, um, that eventually go on to get graduate and postgraduate degrees. One of those students goes and works in the the State Department for a number of years, and is just good at networking. is more of a people person. is more of just likes being in the field and pragmatic. And um, yeah, I don't know. has has worked abroad, et cetera. And then the other student is much more research based, and they like busted their ass for a number of years to get into the the right journals and to get published and kind of co-published in the right papers and worked with the right people in the field and then those people both apply for jobs at university of washington to work as a full-time faculty member the person who's going to get hired is the person who has all the has published for years and has like worked with that right of course And so those are the people advising the students, not the person who went to work in the State Department and like got the kind of hands-on experience and doesn't have the the publication. Of course.
0: And that person is better set up to produce more publications, no doubt. If that's what we're using as our metric, which we are, then that's the right hire. If we're trying to, if the metric was we need the most undergrads to get successful jobs and become successful in their careers outside of academia, obviously the other person would be the better hire. Right. Um, but that's just not the way it's set up. I think the publisher perish model, a lot of times when people talk about it, they think, oh, that's, you know, it's not a good way of incentivizing the right types of research. Uh, there are a lot of different issues with it. But one of the main ones is <laughs> the, the demand side, that like who is reading the articles in a lot of these areas. And I think I think – political science is set up to be one of the more practical ones. Maybe I'm biased, but like there are people that should be reading a lot of political science work, not my work probably, but there are works I've seen that are very helpful. And I'm like, look, if we could get this to the right people, this would be extremely helpful. Um, But there are also lots of pieces, even within political science, where I'm like, not only does the person who needs to read this not exist, it's like not a job that someone has, but no one will ever read this. And, the people who are reading this that are helping you get this published are other academics. (laughs) The problem with the Publisher Parish model is that the people who are reading it and helping you get published are other academics. So it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where if you have a subfield that writes a lot and can write quickly and likes to read, then you're going to have people who are starting journals in subfields that have no practical application outside of the academic sphere. And this is, you know, it's a minor problem. And I think there are a lot of, you know, it's a lot more good than bad that comes out of this model. I think it, it kind of gets, it takes a lot of heat in areas that it don't, doesn't necessarily should. There's a lot of benefits to it. Having peer review is obviously a good thing. And it leads a lot of credibility. But having all these institutions and journals that make it difficult to differentiate, there's not necessarily like there's good or bad journals, like there's medium level journals, there's journals that are for pay. But saying, look, I have a peer reviewed article to someone outside of academia is the same as me saying, oh, if I, you know, I'm published in the top five journals versus I'm published in the 300th journal that didn't read it at all and just gave it to me because I paid them. It doesn't matter to people outside of academia. And they're treating that very similarly. And I think we expect them to do their due diligence to go through and say, well, these are actually well-produced, well-researched, well-regarded articles. But of course they don't. I've worked in governments before and we, we read the journal articles that these articles are based on, not the articles themselves. So if you can come up with a flashy title that says, you know, some fabulous or some ridiculous claim, then we're probably going to, it's going to receive more traction in that 300th level journal than it is in the top 10. And this is a massive problem in political science. Um, And I think it's probably not so much in creative writing, but it's something that is an issue. And I, I think there's, It's always easy to focus on the the negatives. Like that's what we do as graduate students. We say, oh, this this paper could have been better. They could have improved these methods. They could have added this confounding variable. And that's always easier. And there are benefits to this model. But saying that the benefits outweigh the costs isn't good enough. Like we need to be better. We need to say, look, yeah, the benefits might outweigh the costs, but we can get rid of these costs. We can minimize the amount of costs and we can maximize the gains to society, not to the individual professors and individual institutions. And that is something we're very bad at because the incentives are just not set up the way to succeed that way.
1: Yeah, well, it's distressing because time and time again, like who pays for it is the student, no one else, you know? So there's no accountability and like repercussions for the faculty or the institution for having like, you know, um, just underdeveloped networks. Um, and not really delivering on the promises they made because, you know, the um, accrediting body, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, um, the accreditation is so broad and designed to be pretty vague that it's not like there's any accreditation, you know, risk of having, you know, or even really like, yeah, accountability there in terms of, how, how many of your students, I mean, they'll, they'll probably require you to report that data and like start to get that data, but there aren't, you know, um, they're not going to come down on you if you continually underperform in those areas. Um, and that's distressing, but also it's not really, it would be very, it it would be untenable to create an accrediting body that was like that kind of, (laughs) uh, expansive to to actually like punish schools that were underperforming that because there's so many institutions
0: you would need something like a government to to right. help out with that something like the funders of most of these institutions to actually take an interest in well i know i mean
1: it's yeah and that will never happen but it's just up to the institution to like take it seriously and i think most of most institutions have just allowed themselves to survive off students future debt and
0: yeah, yeah.
1: that is, they function more like credit card companies than they do like responsible nonprofits, right?
0: Of course. Okay, so I've got two questions for you. If you were going to start your own university, how would you want it to be set up? If you were going to make public laws for universities overall, which would you change? And third, if you had the chance to go back prior to your PhD, would you do it or what would you do differently about it? <laughs> so about some me. just some minor, minor quash questions here to close this off.
1: I honestly don't think I can answer the second question because I don't okay. even know. So like public laws to govern universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair I enough. Yeah. I don't even know how to approach that question. So I'll just approach the the first and third. Okay. If I was gonna set up my own university, um, I would basically i would try i would make it clear in the mission and vision statement that return on investment and a liberal arts well-rounded education are not mutually exclusive so i would i would tell parents like we have a dynamic network and we're going to get your your kid into a job and you can hold us accountable for that i mean if your kid does the does the work themselves and like gets out there um, and you can hold us accountable for that, but also we're not a degree mill. We're not for profit. We are going to, um, basically whatever we're going to take a liberal arts mindset to whatever field they are. So I like what Point Loma's business department, um, their motto is more than the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I like that, um, just cause it's simple, but also I think very like affecting in the sense of, um, we take the bottom line into account, but that's not, at the end of the day, even as a business department, what we're primarily concerned with. We're, we want ethical business people in the world that can manage sustainable businesses. Um, so that would be one thing I would wanna communicate upfront. I would, want to up front. I would have, I'd have it like internationally focused from the very outset as well, and like trying to create international networks for mm-hmm. students. Um, I think that's something that education is just naturally going towards. So like my online classes from the outset, I would want to have available internationally um, so that students from all over the world could take them. And so they would naturally be bigger. Um, And I think that's probably the future of online education is like big online sections of classes with one kind of like faculty member predominantly teaching those. And then a bunch of TAs or like graders to help them manage all the students in it. And then managing multiple time zones and kind of doing it in an asynchronous way. So that would be something in terms like embracing the future of education in a virtual context that I would do upfront. But I would also, I like residential education and I believe that there's still some value to that. And so I'd still like to have kind of a dorm Type experience because I think we lack in America um, a like rite of passage or initiation and that doesn't have to be college for everybody if you're I've had brilliant friends that are just not built for school and I think we all know people like that and so it's not to say everyone has to go to college to have a rite of passage or like you know become an adult but um, it is an effective way that does have a lot of history in this country so I like that idea of residential living um, and kind of like sharing that community, like the classroom and like living space being uh, adjacent. So um, I think that would still be a big part of it. The school I would I don't I'm I'm just not really built for big institutions. So I think I would just have like a modest scaled you know institution, um, and yeah, I think that I would also have the financial. Department or like financial aid, be really upfront with students too in terms of like if they can afford it or if they cannot afford it, and like being pretty like ruthless to like students that just cannot afford it but you know think they can. I think that's pretty unacceptable the way that this seven hundred billion dollar year industry is like preyed upon eighteen year olds for a few decades now. Um, I would have a general education that had personal finance and civics as part of that. I, it's unacceptable to me that we don't have a personal finance and a civics class, like as part of every general education, I think that'd be such a huge selling point to parents. Like, Hey, we're going to teach your students why it's important to vote or your kids why it's important to vote. And we're going to teach them what a Roth IRA is and why like they should start investing now, even with, even if they only have a little money, why they should, um, Take out credit cards, but keep manage, like manage those, you know. Um, so I think those are some kind of initial things. Also, uh, my friend James Wicks, who I talked about earlier, made a good point that he sees the future of the study of literature being in a media communications context. So any like literature writing courses at the school would be centered on rhetoric and communication and teaching students how to communicate in a written, in a virtual, in an oral capacity because as artificial intelligence automates away a lot of engineering and manufacturing jobs, the need for people who know how to communicate with other human beings is going to be so important in the near future. So I guess that's what I do for that. And then what was the third question? Oh, would I go back and do my PhD? I guess I don't know at this point, like I'd have to, I think five years from now I'll have a much better answer right now. I feel good about it just because I like the work that produced from like the, I like the book that I wrote, you know, and I'm proud of that. And I wouldn't have got there without the infrastructure infrastructure of a PhD. But honestly, like I have a lot more respect for people like my friend Glenn, who is just a working class guy who lives in Manchester in the north of England and like wrote a beautiful book without you know doing a PhD like without having to have like the structure of a PhD surrounding it for him to finish that book um so yeah I think I don't know yet if I if I would do it if if that was a good decision or if I regret it or or what Um, so,
0: yeah, I guess we'll see. What about you? Yeah, great answers. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, I'll try to focus a bit more on side because I think yours is more focused on the creative writing side, which I think is interesting because it is, you know, so different, but also the well, I think that, same issues.
1: that up would just be like a predominantly liberal arts. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. I think that that's one of the things that the U.S. is missing. Like we don't bifurcate between different, like subfields and careers, right? We have this idea that if you need an institution, it has to be all one thing. And I think that really is one of the things that's missing is we talk about, you know, career programs. I know my brother did a, like a one year long boot camp for coding and he had already gotten a minor in uh, computer science, but this, you know, coding program where you, they sit you down and they teach you and you're able to practice for a year straight is in many ways, way more productive and helps you so much more in that field. And I don't think that's specific to computer science. Maybe it's set up that way for coding now where it really is like teaching you a language more or less, but they, you could do something very similar with quantitative aspects of my program. I'm sure with other programs that involve quantitative stuff where you don't necessarily need anything more than that specific aspect of the program to teach you the most important part, the most rewarding part for outside of academia. So the I think if so I'll start off with the third question first. I yeah, I mean I'm I'm in the middle of my PhD, so it it's hard to say whether I would do it again or not. I think that the quantitative aspect has been incredibly helpful and annoying, but also very rewarding and I think in the long term one of the most helpful things I've ever done. What I probably would do differently is wait a couple years more between doing my undergrad and my masters, and I would do a master's that was more quantitative. Focused, right I should already have had these skills that's what the masters should be for master's programs should not be set up like PhDs where they're just more classes they should be practical skills that you didn't learn in undergrad yeah. practical skills for a field that you're focused in I feel like it's um, rare
1: I feel like it's rare to find somebody who's who did a master's and then did a PhD and was like oh yeah I picked the perfect math <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't yeah, like exactly. I regret my master's.
0: yeah I mean, I loved being at l c and and I loved being in London and meeting people that were doing so many different things, and it helped me find the stuff that I'm interested in for sure. but the actual classes I took and the actual skills I gained were not super applicable to what I do now um, and so if I could have improved that year and been focusing on things that I actually found more helpful in the long run, that'd be really helpful. Um, yeah, I think starting an institution from scratch, if I was in charge of the rules and all that sort of thing, I would do something more similar to a combination of. A junior college and a career-based like uh, vocational program but for programs that don't usually have vocational aspects like political science you could teach a very very helpful introduction to political science and the skills you need to succeed in a data-driven political science context in two years if all you focused on was civic aspects maybe a couple of general ed programs and then the quantitative or qualitative skills you need to succeed in the field that would arguably be better and more helpful than, you know, 80% of undergraduate political science departments who teach you academic theory and skills, which is not wrong. But if you're going, if you're not going into academia, it's not nearly as important. I think there's
1: two things with that. It's like, once you get like, once you get into the field long enough and get qualified enough to get to a place where you could create something like that, you're so much a disciple of the time of the system that you came from that you don't want to rethink it and believe in it enough to not reimagine it. And then um, also, even if you do have that, like in where you're like, you do want to fix things, you get so mired in the politics of your department, of your university that you're like, fuck it. Like I can either, like try to like maneuver the politics around this for three years of my life. And it probably won't work out that well. Or I can just like enjoy teaching my classes, enjoy my research. Yeah, know,
0: my of course. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, well, one of the other things I'll say, I lost my train of thought there, but the linkages between, so I think in political science in particular and, and other areas where policy is the main focus of what you're actually trying to get across with the research. So a lot of the research we do is meant to affect policy. What actually does that linkage? The fact that we don't really know what is actually read and what's not read is one of the most appalling things about just all of academia. We assume that it trickles down, but of course we don't believe in trickle down economics. So there's this massive disconnect between (laughs) what what we actually do and what we don't. Um, I uh, okay, I remember what I was gonna say before. I'll get back to that point in a second. But yeah, the you know the the you know we want there to be these borders to entry, of course, because it, once you've gone through them, it massively helps us keep jobs. I think with, with quantitative stuff, which I'm not nearly, you know, I'm not an expert at all, honestly, but 90% of the things that we do could be done with a regression, at least the things that I do, which is very easy to teach even conceptually. Um, But we teach these incredibly fancy models nowadays, which have a couple problems with them. One, they're only slightly more accurate. So if you're doing something like, look, we want to draw attention to this broader trend, you really don't need them. If you're drawing predictions, sure. If you're doing predictions and you're basing policy on predictions, yes, you need these fancier models because even you know, a couple points off is a big difference. But most of the time, that's not what we're doing in most of political science. And second, the more complicated these things become, the less, you know, the less comprehensible they are to the actual policymakers we're making them for. I've seen these crazy, you know, fancy, impressive statistical geospatial models. And it takes me, you know, two hours to understand what they're actually saying. And I'm like, there's no way that someone sitting in a government office somewhere is like sitting there like, oh, I better, you know, retroactively go through and figure out what this means. The fact that we don't have linkages that allow us to disseminate this information in ways that are easy to read and easy to enact to right. policymakers and NGOs and institutions is our fault, right? That is a failure of the incentives, and we haven't corrected it. Well, the, yeah. Well,
1: it's, it's such a difficult, like. So, like I mentioned before, I read some of your papers, and like to be respected in your field, or even to certainly get published or get taken seriously in any, you have to use this incredibly dense jargon that no layperson understands, and so yeah there's a missing piece where it's like yeah your congressman is not gonna understand or have the time to even or the willpower at all to want to even understand any of this but there's no person translating that into normal speak to be able to be like all right i know this is a bunch of fancy jargon there's regression models and all this stuff here's basically what they're saying here's basically what they're advising you to
0: do and they're getting better on two fronts. It has improved over the last few years. One, they've realized that this is a massive issue. At least some of some people have. And they've started to allow for more quick turnaround on a lot of these things. You know, More academics have involved themselves in magazines and online news publications, which was pretty taboo even like five, 10 years ago. Wow. Nowadays, being able to translate your own research work into online articles is seen as something that people do. It's still not something that gets you a job, but it is something that is more accepted. And that's recent change. Two, they have started very slowly to say it's okay for academics to not go into academia. And so So the reason there's uh, to go into academia, uh, I've had, you know, when I was interviewing for PhD programs, most of the people I talked to said, oh, you're definitely planning on staying in academia, right? And it was like you would be immediately removed from contention They're if like, you said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the problem is if you eliminate everyone who's even remotely interested in non-academic work, then you obviously aren't going to have any linkages to non-academic work because right. no, none of those people right. exist. They, You eliminated them all and everyone is within the system of academia, which is not bad. I think there are many benefits. It's a very rewarding profession. But you need people who understand academia in non-academia, even if it's for the own benefit of your long term success of your well, career and it's you also want like, people to understand and be able to disseminate the information. And it's also like they're incentivized to only, you know, accept students who want to go
1: into academia because those people will, will probably eventually become grant writers and get grants for the institution to continue doing their research but the problem is that like that grant money may or may may not be devoted to something useful at all whereas like some hiring somebody that has connections within the field will be massively useful for the average student yeah
0: of course so i think this has gone on a little long i want to bring up one last thing so you mentioned that you think the future of education has to do with you know large online viewing and then maybe some in-person stuff just for the experience, but not at the costs, the exorbitant costs. Yeah. A lot of the stuff in the, you know, the modern economy, and I've written about this a little bit, has to do with these winner-take-all superstar industries. And one of my colleagues, Nicholas, brought up the fact that why would anyone pay for an online education from a, not only a school that's like not in the top 100, but why would you choose to do online education at a top 20 school when you could take the same class from Harvard. Right. If everything shifts online, why do any of these institutions exist? Because the scale ability of online education is infinite, right? You can put the same lecture on everyone's Kind of. It's kind of infinite. Like, it's, I, I mean, the you can see the issue. What would you say about non-infinite? Well, I, well I
1: just think that like, uh, yeah, let's say Harvard becomes the Google of education and just, you know, uses its brand name to dominate the field. Eventually, like the reason Harvard's Harvard is because they are so selective Mm -hmm. with their student body. So like the more you expand, the more you kind of uh, just unavoidably, uh, not denigrate your reputation, but dilute your reputation. And so you become less and less Harvard, the more and more like students, the more and more you expand maybe you can mitigate that for a single generation by just accepting you know because there's insanely bright students every single year obviously that don't get accepted into harvard because it's so damn selective but i just think eventually Harvard's going to become a normal institution if they actually were aggressively expanding in an online capacity in the future so i guess that's one thing i would say also it's not necessarily infinite in the sense of like harvard would still have to hire real like yeah they'd have really awesome dynamic online lectures but like those are eventually are going to have to be updated those people are eventually are going to retire that information eventually is going to be outdated and then they're going to have to you know hire more and more people and it's like again like the scalability it's like it's scalable to a degree but then there is kind of a cliff that i think you It was like all right we're going to compromise this semester by hiring this person who's kind of second rate, but like they're almost there. And then you just kind of increase that with the amount of students. And then like it is going to drop off to a certain degree at some point, you know? So I don't, I I don't have that worry necessarily that like the top, there's only going to be 20 institutions in us, but I think it absolutely is clear to your friend's point that they're, is a ton of institutions that are going to close their doors in the next 15 years because they're not going to be able to adapt to this and they probably should die a natural death. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I get your point. I, it doesn't necessarily have to be Harvard. You know, I was using it as a facetious example, but if you, well, I, I, I understood what yeah, you're yeah. saying in terms of like yeah. a top 20 institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the, if I was an institution that was ranked you know below 50 in every category and every fields, I would be worried. If everything starts to move online, why would somebody pay $50,000 to listen to me speak when they could listen to someone from a degree program that's seen as much more prestigious?
1: And and that's a totally, that's 100% valid critique. And it's something that should be a very sobering thing to institutions like the one I work for, you know? Yeah. But also, and I think you'll probably see this start to move where you're like, you'll have all the top 20 institutions, you'll be fine, or the top 50, And then you'll have all the community colleges that are like, hey, we know we're a community college, but it costs, you know. And we'll give you the skills. Yeah. Yeah, We're
0: practically focused. So like, they'll
1: probably be okay because, and they'll also get state funding and everything. So like, and like more power to those institutions. Like, I think we need great community colleges. So that's great. But there will probably just be this like huge vacancy of anything in between possibly in in the future.
0: It'll be interesting to see. I think the bifurc, I mean, this is, I think that, we have almost understated the effects, the potential effects of the online revolution for colleges and universities. Oh, if, it sure. is, if it becomes the case, I think it's less about practical skills. I think in most places you can learn the same practical skills online as in person, pretty much the same. As long as you're, the infrastructure you're teaching on is up to scratch and you have you know a computer screen to learn from, yeah. you can learn quantitative stuff online. It's not that hard. The problem is that the prestige is not the same, right? If I have a, degree from Harvard that's online versus an in-person degree, it's not the same as the other one. But that's just, you know, perception. If it becomes the case that people are perceiving online degrees or treating them in industries the same way that they're treating in-person degrees, which has already started to happen in certain things with MBAs and other types of online programs, people are in trouble. And that entire industry, that $700 billion industry could be, you know, completely turned around. And I think, you know, we're in a position where I hope we can be part of turning that into something that improves on some of these issues. I think we haven't really talked about the benefits of academia. We've talked about them a little bit. I think there are a lot of, there's something to be said for the idea that a lot of people come together outside of careers, outside of kind of institutions that already exist and talk about things that wouldn't be talked about otherwise. I think you can see this with mental health. I think talking about mental health in a, in a world where there wasn't education systems to discuss these things would, would have been much more difficult. Yeah. Trying to bring that up in a, in a workplace setting and having them, you know, give up the bottom line to improve yeah. healthcare services is not something that was going to take place if it wasn't for undergraduates and graduates bringing these things up in a university space first and saying, this is how I want the career, you know, the place I work in to be knowledgeable of these facts. And there's so many examples of this sort of thing. There are so many benefits of having a space like this. And where we, we, stand to lose those as well if everything goes this way. And so I think preserving the good and showing people that that good does exist is something we're not doing well as people in academia and higher education. And I think it's something we should be worried about and hopefully it will be able to help effect change for the better, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I know we have been really hard on our own field. You know, uh, in the That's what we do
0: best. We're graduate students, we critique.
1: But it's only like I only know those critiques so intimately because I love the university setting so much. Of course, of course. So I'm like the
0: Padres. I could tell you every single thing wrong with the Padres infield and outfield right now. It's because I want them to win, but they're terrible.
1: (laughs) And they will always be. Um, No, I just and so I love the university setting, and I really believe in like what it offers society because the thing that you just mentioned, like where else do you have a regular exchange of ideas and people exposed to a regular sh- exchange of ideas for multiple years at a time, at a period of their life, you know? Like you're not gonna get it in the business. You're not gonna get it, like most people don't go to church consistently or like, well, you're not gonna to church anyway. Like you're not gonna, like an infinitesimally small amount of people are part of book clubs or part of like, or have, I don't know any type of like space to talk about these things and so um I don't know I've been thinking a lot about this quote from George Saunders who's a a novelist and uh, he's more of a short story writer anyways he was interviewed kind of about like you know art in the age of Trump and he was just saying like you know I came along you know in the late 90s and thought like oh man like fiction writers used to be important like Vonnegut used to be on primetime television and now I'll like kind of like take the leftovers or whatever. And he's like, that was a huge mistake. Like I'm really, you know, he was, he was re- he was regretting that type of stance because it kind of uh seated the field and saying, like, yeah, art's not important anymore. But he's like, if you starve art long enough, if you um and he was talking about it in in a language capacity, he's like, if you denigrate the power of language long enough, or um show a disrespect for language and like in in carefully chosen words and fact checking and um and creating like carefully composed dialogue and text you get trump like you get somebody who actively disrespects and like negates the yeah. apparent like power of words and and and
0: And we haven't even talked about the the politicization of academia at all. I think it's a whole nother podcast, but it's another major issue facing America's institutions. Yeah. And so
1: I just think that like, it can't like day to day, you won't notice have not having places of information exchange or an exchange of ideas or creative spaces. Like day to day, you won't notice it. And so you'll devalue it, but then If that perpetuates for years, you get a society that can't create any type of art. And it's like, if you want to look at a society that's devoid of art, look at Nazi Germany, look at China right now, look at Soviet Russia, where all the art's propaganda. And the only art that is allowed is one that's approved by the state. And like, that is Trump's America. Like, can you think of a single like respected artists that's come out in support of Trump. Clint Eastwood, maybe one person.
0: Yeah. I mean, you would know
1: better than me. Probably, probably. the only person I can think of. I think three doors down <laughs> performed. <laughs> I forgot. respected
0: artist. I forgot you were so into three doors down. I know that yeah, was yeah. a huge blow to your fandom. No, but, but
1: that speaks to like. Three artists. No, like there's a reason that artists don't support this guy. And it's not because. You know, it's not because of it's because he denigrates language and has no respect for the creative artistic mindset. And you might think that's highfalutin like BS, but there's a reason that tourists go to see impressive works of art from the past. They don't go to see the the best designed sewage system. They don't they typically (laughs) don't go to see like engineering feats of the past. They go to see beautifully designed buildings that have, that come from an artistic mindset more than they come from an engineering mindset, right? They go to see beautiful, um, they go to see like the homes of composers, they go to see beautiful paintings. So I don't know, like these artists are typically born in higher education institutions, not always of course, But that's typically like where they get their start. And so having spaces for that is important, but also having institutions like we're talking about that are much more practical that actually do have return on investment are hugely important as well.
0: Academia should exist, but all undergrads shouldn't be going into academia and we should acknowledge that fact. And we should set up institutions that allow for people to follow different rewarding and you know, institutions that allow for a return on investment to help improve people's long-term careers. Um, yeah. I mean, we can, uh, I'm happy to hear feedback about this. We've got a couple of fun episodes coming up. I think this week we're going to get back into it. So keep a lookout. We've got uh, probably three or four and we've got a couple of fun ones. So Hopefully this wasn't too much of a bore for people not involved in academia, but uh, if so, and you got to this point in time, I, I apologize. <laughs> 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 but uh, and as always, we can, you can find us on Twitter and reach out to us by email. Who else they can find us? Bat Signal. we allow Bat Signal. We'll be there. That's your email. Thank shortly. You. <laughs> got to you, huh? uh, MorganWack at gmail.com It's usually the easiest. I'll uh, I'll keep a lookout for my rational listeners. Anyway, until next time. Any final thoughts? Do you want to give these guys a break? Let's go break. Adios.